0: In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, an express earful of our top stories from across the week. I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio. And on your menu today, Bishop Michael Curry, the first black leader of the Episcopal Church, on whether the midterms will be judgment day for Donald Trump. From 4am starts to weekends offline, why aping top executives is not the secret to professional success. And why Romania's royals won't get there happily ever after. But first things first, our cover story. It's been a year since sexual assault allegations against Harvey Weinstein exploded into the international Me
1: Too movement. In every walk of life, powerful men have been forced out, and not just in America. Now Brett Kavanaugh may be denied a seat on America's highest court following a series of accusations that he committed sexual assaults decades ago as a student. What began on the casting couch has made its way to the Supreme Court bench. We argued that this is clear progress. Women who speak out are being taken more seriously. In 1991, when Anita Hill accused Clarence Thomas, now a Supreme Court judge of sexual harassment, his defenders smeared her as a little bit nutty and a little bit slutty. The machine backing Mr Kavanaugh is equally determined. However, it has refrained from questioning either Ms Blasey Ford's sanity or her morals. And there is wider recognition of the gravity of the abuses. Most defences of Mr Kavanaugh have focused on his presumed innocence. 30 years ago, they would have insisted that the drunken fumblings of a 17-year-old are a fuss about nothing. But we
0: warned that in America, where it all began, the MeToo movement risks falling victim to
1: the all-consuming culture wars. Mr Kavanaugh, however, his nomination turns out, is likely to deepen that divide, if only because Republican zeal to rush his confirmation is further evidence that the party puts power first. If Me Too in America becomes a Democrats-only movement, it will be set back. Some men will excuse their behaviour on the ground that it is hysteria whipped up by the left to get at Republicans. This is because Me Too is not so much about sex as it is about power. How power is distributed, how people are held accountable when power is abused. Me Too could turn out to be the most powerful force for a fairer settlement between men and women since women's suffrage. To find out how Hashtag Me Too can
0: survive the partisan battlefield, go to the business section of this week's Economist. And if you haven't already, do subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer, 12 issues for $12 or £12. Here at The Economist, we're used to being on the cultural front line too. Last month, we faced fire over our decision to interview Steve Bannon, Donald Trump's former chief strategist, who's now working to support populist nationalists across Europe. Some of you thought we made the wrong decision, but some of you backed us up. Clinton Davison, writing on Facebook, praised us for taking the debate to Mr Bannon.
1: If you want to defeat your opponent, you first have to understand him. Deplatforming him may make you feel righteous, but it won't make him go away. That's a fantasy for academic leftists. It certainly didn't stop his buddy from winning the election. On a separate note, I'd like to see The Economist ask what the difference is between Bannon and Bernie's versions of free trade is bad.
0: But writing on Twitter, Michael Taggart thought we'd made the wrong call.
2: Steve Bannon is getting a lot of airtime. I've yet to hear him say anything intelligent, but there's an awful lot that's stupid and misleading. Stupid words, clever strategy?
0: One thing the interview did do, though, is provide food for thought on the way the Trump machine thinks and operates. And on the difference between the signal and the noise, which Steve Bannon talked to us about, a listener, Jonathan Thurling, had this point to make.
2: What Bannon calls signal and noise is a step too far for a liberal democracy. Fierce debate cannot survive when what is said is valued differently from what it is taken to mean. All statements made by an individual in the public space are an indictment of his or her character and ideas. One cannot deflect criticism with the childhood excuse of, I didn't mean that.
0: Let us know what you think. We're on radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. You might even hear your words on air where we sort the signal from the noise. Our latest guest on The Economist Asks was Bishop Michael Curry, the first black leader of the Episcopal Church, the American branch of Anglicanism we discussed what role religion should play in such divided times and asked him whether he thinks the commander-in-chief acts in good faith.
2: I'm not going to judge a soul. That's, as the Pope said, who am I to judge? Only God knows that. What I know are the policies that are going on. I disagree with separating children from their parents. I disagree when the president doesn't speak when Nazis are marching through the streets and Klansmen are marching through the streets. And my president does not condemn that. I disagree with that.
0: Well, would you pray for a different outcome in the next election in that case?
2: (laughs) What a good question. One must always be careful in not telling God what to do. What I do pray for is that we will elect leaders who are just, who are righteous, who are loving, who are compassionate, and who are wise. That I do pray for.
0: And if you're wondering where you heard his dulcet tones previously, it was probably at the royal wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle when millions tuned in around the world to hear his rousing sermon. What is it about a royal wedding that's so compelling? A piece in the Europe section of this week's paper reported from Romania, where the nation is longing for just such a happy event.
2: Nicholas Medforth Mills, grandson of the late King Michael of Romania, is getting married on September 30th. To the chagrin of Romanian monarchists, it will not be the royal wedding they have longed for.
0: Calls for the restoration of the monarchy have stumbled on the problem of agreeing an heir.
2: Princess Margareta is the current custodian of the Crown. In a decree in 2015, her late father declared that since she has no children, she would be the last of the royal line. He also explicitly deprived the once promising Nicholas Medforth Mills of his princely title and dynastic rights after he was accused of fathering a child out of wedlock. He denies it.
0: And there are other not-so-young pretenders.
2: An unlikely yet vocal rival is the self-styled Prince Paul of Romania, the grandson of King Carol II, who tried to sue King Michael to have his claim honoured. After a failed presidential run in 2000, the claimant has supported the restoration of a constitutional monarchy. But given what a tangle the family tree is, Romanians may well hesitate a bit longer.
0: It's a 100 years since the Spanish flu swept the world. According to the latest estimates, it's killed at least 50 million and possibly as many as 100 million people, more than both world wars combined. Laura Spinney is author of Pale Rider, the Spanish flu and how it changed the world. She told our science and technology podcast, Babbage, how one disease became
1: so devastating because it emerged into a world at war. Lots of people were on the move in 1918, not just troops, but also civilians, refugees. Lots of people were hungry. Lots of people's public health infrastructure had been suspended or broken down because of the war. So in some ways, you could argue that we were the architects of our own misery. In 2018, we're not able to predict the when and the where of the next pandemic or how severe it will be. So we're in this kind of difficult middle place where we know it'll happen. We can't really say much about how. But we need, you know, this huge kind of infrastructure that makes the vaccine fast enough, that gets it everywhere uh, in time. We need better antiviral drugs. And for all of this, we need better research and better infrastructure. And that means funding and investment.
0: More money is so often the answer but how to get it. Corporate executives from Apple's Tim Cook to Jeff Bezos at Amazon love to trumpet their own lifestyles as the secret to success. But our Bartleby columnist Philip Coggan isn't so sure. He told Andrew Palmer in Money Talks, our business and finance podcast, why CEOs should stop preaching what they practice. The idea that we can emulate these people and that will bring us success is is just wrong. And also, I think they can seem otherworldly. If you are a CEO, you uh, have a lot of people around to support you. You will have people look after your kids to ferry you to work. You know, Richard Branson was another good example. He said he hates people being late and his customers on Virgin Trains uh, laughed rather hollowly at that. But Richard Branson has people to get him there on time. The danger is that this has become A version of the medieval lives of the saints. Instead of being canonized, these people get millions of share options. But they're not saints. They have got to the position perhaps by their brains, but we shouldn't imagine that we can have anything much to learn from the way that they live their lives. Finally, this week's obituary told the tale behind a voice familiar to generations of Chinese. That's the voice of Shan Tianfang, China's most beloved storyteller.
2: With his voice alone, he could evoke the creaking wing beats of a flying bird, the peeling, descending glugs of a man taking poison, or the power of an adversary, the corners of his eyes and brows showing a thousand streams of killing aura. Wherever a well has water people tuned in to him.
0: His favourites were the legends of ancient
2: empire. The medieval romance of the Three Kingdoms, the journey to the West where an intrepid monk went searching for Buddhist texts, and Water Margin with its wild band of 108 scheming outlaws. Some stories had hundreds of chapters, each ending with a koi to be continued.
0: But during the Cultural Revolution, the builders of the new China didn't want his stories.
2: They sent him to the far northeast, his teeth knocked out to silence him, to cut hay and cart manure. He escaped and lived with his family on the street for four years, selling artificial flowers. In 1978, he was rehabilitated, though with a mouthful of painful plastic through which he had to learn to speak again. He summed up life then in one word endure.
0: But his tale finally had a happy ending.
2: The young loved him as much as the old, and the government declared him an inheritor of China's intangible cultural heritage. The channel was set up in 2005 just to keep broadcasting his stories. At an episode a day, the stock would last until 2036. Ever since the first studio performance, he had reminded China that it needed those tales after all. Despite its rush to modernity, it needed him.
0: That's the end of this week's chapter of Tasting Menu. But if you are hungry for more stories, you can find us at economist.com or by searching for Economist Radio on your podcast app. And if you like what we do, or you have a suggestion for how we could all do it even better, leave us a review. We love to hear from you. I'm Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist.